I invite you to open your Bible with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of an army of comforters. An, an army of comforters. When life gets really tough and you are faced with hard stuff and circumstances run out of your control and it all begins to pull you down, uh, the question for our consideration this morning is how do you cope? How do you cope? When the letter comes in the mail that you weren't in, accepted into the program, or at the end of the tryouts and you didn't make the team, or when you were called into the office and told you've been let go and realize you're in the ranks of the unemployed, when you hear the diagnosis of cancer, or in the late hours of the night you get the phone call and discover that your loved one has been in an accident, and then when either through death or divorce you lose your husband, your wife, your spouse. And it's not if, it's not if, but when these kinds of circumstances occur, when you feel like you're being pulled under, what do you do? Where do you turn? Over the years, I've discovered a few things about this life. First, no one is immune from suffering, disappointment, and pain, sadness, and loss are common to all of us for all of the scenarios I've mentioned are woven into the ebb and flow of the human fabric. The Bible is clear that such times and seasons of testing are certain to come, times when living gets really tough. Second, everyone usually at an early age begins discovering and developing patterns and ways for coping with hard things. Developing patterns for coping with suffering. A few years ago, I discovered from some parents in the church that several young girls in the student ministry had become cutters. They were taking razor blades and cutting themselves. It became a way that they had discovered and fell into somehow as a way of handling stress, and so they cut. When life seemed overwhelming and they felt anxious, they found relief by cutting. Other people cope by working, staying busy. Some do so to keep themselves from having time to be still because they don't like having idle time to be alone with their own thoughts. Some work make uh, work to make lots of money, searching for security and meaning from acquiring more and bigger barns. Others attempt to cope with life through sports and athletics. They discover at an early age they can garner praise and attention by becoming better than their peers. And sadly, they begin to find identity and value and self-worth by being good at running or kicking or hitting or throwing something. Some have learned to cope with difficulties in life with academics, excelling in grades. When life gets hard, they turn to the books and find relief and affirmation from test scores. That was never the case with me. 
Some cope with their looks. They cope by working out or buying clothes or jewelry or new hairstyles and shoes. And they soothe themselves by going on a shopping spree. It's a way to cope. To make themselves feel better. About 20 years ago, I was driving a church van and going with students to summer camp. And this kid in the front seat said to me, his name was Carl. He said, hey, Pastor Charlie, do you care if I turn on the radio? And I said, no, it's okay. Just don't stay on something bad. And so he started scanning through these radio stations. And he came upon this song. And he cranked it up in the church van. And the entire van, I'd never heard it before, the entire van full of youth started singing. I get knocked down when I get up again. Nothing's going to keep me down. I get knocked down when I get up again. Nothing's going to keep me down. Some of you have heard the song. And it just repeats. It's kind of an annoying song. Repetitive, kind of repulsive. And while I may not particularly like the song, it's pretty culturally relevant. Some of you don't really know what that song's about. The artist was connecting with his audience with a message. When things get hard, when he feels like he's getting knocked down, going through trials, and life begins to pull at him, his way of coping was by drinking lots of alcohol. That's what the song's about. He drinks a whiskey drink, then a vodka drink, then a lager drink, then a cider drink. He does it all night long, goes to the bathroom continuously, remembers the good times, and sings, Oh, Danny boy. And on and on. It's a way to cope. It's the way people learn to cope in different ways. And so I want to ask you to do this. Fill in the blank. When my life becomes really hard, I've learned to cope by what? Fill in the blank. What is it for you? How do you cope? Most of you may be familiar with or at least have heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's known as the Prince of Preachers. He was British from birth and a Baptist by, particular Baptist by convention. He lived and served in the middle of the and latter part of the 19th century. And what you may not know about Spurgeon was he battled with severe bouts of depression and anxiety. He once said of himself, and I quote, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as to which I go. In our text that we're going to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul struggled with some tough overwhelming times in his life. In fact, if you have your Bible open, read with me in the first chapter, verses 8 and 9, and we'll come back and read the entire text. But just notice these two verses, 8 and 9. He actually says, let me tell you about the trouble. Don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that which we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Like we were sentenced to death. Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian congregation to encourage them. And a key word that continually runs through this letter is the word paraclesis, which translates 
to encourage or to comfort. Uh, from the root word, paraclesis comes from the root word parakaleo or paraclete, which refers to the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus said the comforter, this paraclete, this comforter will come. And so the meaning of the word is to literally come alongside specifically to help. Paul uses it almost 20 times in this letter. Even though many in the church had turned on him with no one standing up for him, he writes to encourage and comfort them, the very ones who had caused much of his hurt. After the church had turned on him and abandoned him, he sends Titus to go and to confront these false teachers, those who were causing the trouble and stirring up division in the church. And there's a good outcome to it. For the most part, the majority of these troublemakers repent. And soon afterward, Paul reconvenes with Titus up in Philippi, and Titus brings this good, encouraging report to them, and so Paul writes this letter, a letter that he's thankful for, and he writes to encourage him. And so in our text, I, we're going to see that when life hits you in the face and begins to pull you under, Paul says, this is how to find comfort and encouragement. And so read with me. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Again, we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Paul begins to describe the reality of suffering. It was a reality in his life, and it's a reality in our life. All persons who live, if they live long enough, are going to go through hurt and trial and sadness and despair. There's going to be some kind of pain and suffering in life. 
In fact, Paul actually says to Timothy, it's a promise. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus are going to suffer. Then Paul refers to his own life here in the text as an example. The entire text is full of, you read it, it's full of inclusive language. In other words, he's describing himself. He's describing his suffering. Look, if you have your Bible open, look at verse 4. He says, us, our suffering, we. Look at verse 5. He says, for the sufferings of Christ abound in us. Verse 6, if we are afflicted, we also suffer some of the same things as you. And then verses 8 through 11, he describes his suffering a little more fully and begins in verse 8. Let me tell you about it. We don't want you to be ignorant. We don't want you to be uninformed about suffering, our suffering. He says, when we were in Asia, it got rough. When we were in Asia, it was tough, and we don't know exactly the specifics of what he was referring to. Paul doesn't provide the details, but it seems like the the congregation at Corinth understood, and they knew about what happened to Paul when he was in Asia. And it may have been used by the false teachers that had crept into the church as support and evidence against Paul to undermine his apostleship and his authority, that his extreme suffering was evidence that he was a fake, an imposter, for no real apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ would suffer like that. It's a sign of sin in his life, or he's an imposter, he's a fake. And so they were doing what many people do today. They tear other people down in order to elevate themselves. It may have happened around the time he was in Ephesus or shortly before, or maybe even after, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he He describes there were many adversaries, many people against him, working against him, trying to do him harm. It's easy to assume that whatever happened to him, some of it is captured over in the 11th chapter. Keep your place here. Would you turn in your Bible over to chapter 11? And he describes, and whatever happened in Asia, some of it had to be captured here. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and invite you to read with me, starting in verse 22. And this is some of those who are bringing accusations that he was a false an apostle. So a lot of criticism, a lot of tearing him down. In verse 22, he says, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am, I am more. And then listen to this. Suffering. Difficulty. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. You remember in Thessalonica, they pushed him over a side of a hill and picked up bricks and stones and pelted him and pelted him until he was no longer moving and bloodied. They thought he was dead, and God raised him, raised him up. From the Jews, five times I received, think about this, five 
times he was scourged. I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A, a night and a day I floated around in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And besides all of this, the other things that comes upon me daily is my deep concern for all the burden for all the churches. Let old Joel Olstein preach about that. Name it, claim it. Where the gospel is about, it's a man-centered gospel. It's a man it's all about us and we use God instead of a God-centered gospel where it's all about him and he uses us. And he may, some of us actually may go through some things like that for his glory. The end result of his suffering was in verses 8 and 9, he says, notice the scripture. Go back, go back to chapter 1. Notice how he describes it. He says, we were burdened. And not just burdened. He says, we were burdened beyond measure. Not just burdened, not just burdened beyond measure, but burdened beyond measure and above strength. Not just burdened, not just burdened beyond measure, not just burdened beyond measure and above strength, but burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Didn't, sometimes felt like I didn't even want to live anymore. And in verse 9, Paul explains what he means, what, when, what he felt. He says we felt like we were dying, like we had the sentence of death placed upon us. And he describes, he says, this sentence of death that we felt was in us. It's what we felt in our hearts. It's what was going through our minds, that we despaired even of life. Literally like we weren't going to survive this. We weren't going to make it through. We weren't we were going to exist any longer. Have you been there? When life hits you so hard that you can't breathe, just your breath, you just, just can't find breath. When life is pressing so hard down upon your neck that all the oxygen is being cut off, Paul is describing real suffering, and it was suffering even that was undeserved. Undeserved. Sometimes we suffer and bring pain upon our own lives because of folly, because of poor choices. Any of you ever done that? Did some things and you look back and think, boy, I, I brought it all on myself. It's still suffering, but it's even harder when it hits us for no fault of our own. 
We know from the Bible that all the suffering, all the pain, even death is a result of sin. It was no part of God's original intention or design for us, but entered into the human equation when our parents, Adam and Eve, chose to be irresponsible, demanding their freedom, insisting that they knew more than God. We'll live life according to our own standards and we'll march to the beat of our own drum so they knew more than God, made the intentional choice, and they disobeyed. And once they did, sin entered into the equation and marred all of God's creation. The Bible tells us, and we know this to be true, that all have sinned, each and every one of us, the first three chapters of the book of Romans, one point, all have sinned. There's none righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have turned astray, and our righteousness before God, our best efforts, our best days are still as filthy rags before him. All have sinned. And sin brings suffering and eventual death. The text begins describing the reality of suffering. Paul is citing suffering as from his own life as an example to us. And then second, I want us to notice how does he respond to it? How does he cope? How does he handle it? And I believe that Paul's life provides for us a response, a pattern, an example for us to emulate. And his example, how he responds to this is pretty crazy. It's, it's totally abnormal. It's not what any of us are going to initially, it's not how we're going to just normally respond. It's not natural, but by the grace of God, it's what you and I are called to do, and by God's grace, it's what we aspire to do. So how does Paul handle it? How does he respond? And so before examining this pattern, this example that we're going to see here in the text. I want you to, again, not to overlook the fact that much of Paul's suffering, much of his hurt came from, some of it came from these very Corinthians that he's writing to, to encourage. They were the ones who had hurt him and turned against him and no one stood up for him. No one had his back. Accusations began to fly about him in the church and everyone just jumped on the bandwagon and believed the very worst about him which makes Paul's response to the suffering even more remarkable. Notice, he writes this letter to comfort them, to encourage them, and console them. (laughs) They should have written him a letter and saying, we're sorry, we apologize to you, and Paul, we're sorry, and we, we hope that we can make it up to you sometime in the future. We can comfort and encourage and console you, but that's not what happens. So what's the pattern? How does he respond to this? Well, first he focuses on God and worships. Look at verse 3. It's a doxology spirit. What does he say? He says, blessed be God. You know what that means? It means praise be to God. Praise be to the Lord Jesus. So in the midst of hard hard times and painful times, he focuses, he fixes his thoughts and his attention on God and begins to give God's praise, which I would propose to you is not natural, it's not normal, and it's not the human, human response. But Paul, in the midst of this, determines to bless God, to praise God, maybe even to sing. You remember in, when he's arrested and he's in that Philippian jail? He'd been scourged, bloodied, 
thrown into a dank, dark prison cell. The Bible says he's in stocks. You remember what happened about midnight? And so I started singing. Started singing. Wonder what they, wonder what they say. Blessed be the name. I don't know. It's probably a psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise him in the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his creatures. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all they're just, maybe they started singing praises to the widow. know what it was. He started singing. How many of you think that's normal? I don't. Further, how many of you believe that, that if you were in Paul's shoes, that's how you would have handled yourself? That's how you would have handled the suffering? I believe there's some of you that would do that, the very same as Paul. And I think that some of you probably wouldn't, and I hope all of us would, would agree that that's something we would all aspire to. But in the midst of this, Paul focuses on God and he worships, and then I want to dig a little deeper and consider how did he get there? If that's not a normal response, if that's not a normal reaction, if that's not a way that we just naturally cope, how did he get there? How did he become like that? What led him to such a response? Well, I would propose that he had learned some things from his experiences, the same things that all of us are learning. Some things led him to respond like he did. And notice what they are. First, he came to know God personally. He came to know God personally. Verse 3, praise be to the God, to the one true living God, the Father, he says, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul came to know God through faith in God's Son. That's how it got started, knowing Jesus. Jesus, the Son, made the claim. You remember John 14, 6? I am the way. I am the truth. I am life. There's no other way to know God apart from me. Paul one day, quite unexpectedly, heard God's voice, heard his call upon his life. God worked. God took initiative in Paul to convict him of his sins, to speak, and for Paul to hear his voice and to draw him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of it was according to God's mercy and grace. Do you know him? Do you really know God? Through faith in his son, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know him? Only you can answer that certain, that question with absolute certainty. Have you come to a place, a point in your life where you've recognized that you're a sinner, that you've sinned against God, and then through repentance and by faith, this saving faith, it's, this saving faith is a surrender Following Jesus is not just something you add to your life. I think I'll go to the gym and start that, and I, I think I'll start eating right, and I'll do that, and I think I'm going to be more disciplined. It's not a self-improvement campaign. Not, it's not that you just add Jesus to your life. Following Jesus is a surrender. You surrender. You submit your life to him. And you cry out and say, God, I need you. If you will forgive me, God, if you'll have me according to your mercy and grace, I'll yield it all. I'll give it all to you for your purpose and your glory. That's following Jesus. So Paul, during a tough time of real suffering, could praise God because he knew God personally. But then he goes on to describe he knew God even more particularly. He came to know that God is a God of mercy and God is a God of all comfort. 
God, instead of giving us what we deserve, right? Romans 6, 23, and the wages, what we deserve because of our sin is death. Eternal separation, that's what we deserve. But instead of God giving us what we deserve, he shows mercy. I love the choir song that they did a couple weeks ago, Mercy. Show me mercy, gave me mercy. It's the mercy of God that holds back us receiving from him what we really deserve and have coming. And it's the realization of God's mercy towards him that compels him to be merciful even to these Corinthians. And in particular, Paul experienced God's comfort. He recognized God's comfort, his presence, that God had come alongside to the Holy Spirit to help first this great paraclete, this comforter. I used to remember growing up in church and used to sing an old hymn, Comforter has come. We're done. You sing about the Holy Spirit, Comforter. This Comforter has come to be with us, to dwell in us always, to never leave us. Jesus, you remember, promised? He said, I will abide with you. I will stay with you even to the ends of the earth, the ends of this age. He came to know that and through the Holy Spirit. And God brought Paul comfort through his word. I was thinking about, about the first time that Paul got and arrived in Corinth and he was ministering there. And he had just come out of some terrible experiences in Thessalonica and Berea. And then he gets down to Athens and then and he eventually makes his way over to, to Corinth. And he just had a terrible time. The Bible says that he stays in Corinth for 18 months and he ministers there, but prior to that, here's what encourages him. This is what comforted him. God said to him, hey, Paul, don't be afraid. No one in this city is going to harm you. No one is going to lay hands on you, and I have many people in this city that will believe. You're talking about encouraging and comforting when he, you get a word like that from the Lord. It's one of the ways that God brings comfort to us by speaking to us through his word. He speaks as we abide in him. He speaks through scripture and through preaching and teaching. He speaks through circumstances. He speaks through prayer. And he speaks through our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a brother here this week and was just kind of devastated by some things that happened in his life. And he was smart enough to reach out to some brothers here that loved him prayed with him, met with him, and shared the word with him, and there was some comfort, some strength, some encouragement, some clarity that came through that. God is, brings comfort to us. And in the midst of all Paul's suffering and trial and affliction, his method for coping was to first focus on God more than the trial, more than those who had hurt him, to focus on his relationship, that personal relationship with Jesus, and to focus particularly on God's attributes of mercy and comfort. And notice in verse 3 and 4, he says, My God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the very one who has comforted me in all of my tribulations. And so the point is, Think about this. Without hardships, without sufferings, we would never come to know God's mercy and comfort. And without ever knowing God's mercy and comfort, we would never know how to comfort other people. When we are suffering, faith realizes, faith sees and understands, God, you are preparing me in this. You are equipping me to be a comforter. And notice the insight provided to this point from verses 5 through 7. There's a promise here 
He says, as suffering abounds, so also does consolation. Verse 7, if, it's clear, for if we partake of suffering, we will also likewise partake of comfort. And so the comfort that God provides will always be equal to or of greater measure than the sufferings, always. It's a principle of faith. And it's a principle of faith to be applied before the comfort is realized. God, I'm hurting right now, but by faith, I know that you're at work and you're going to bring comfort and encouragement into my life. It's a principle of faith. Therefore, I'm going to praise you and I'm going to worship you as I'm walking through this. And I recognize that, God, you are teaching me how to be a comforter to other people. And so in suffering, Paul determines focus on the Lord, to praise him, to worship him, to, to sing perhaps, and focus on the relationship, on his mercy and comfort. And he reminds the church to do the same thing. When life is hard, this is the pattern to emulate. And so in closing, I want to say three things. Three things as a way to apply all of this. And the first is I invite you to follow Paul's example. To determine ahead of time that when life gets this way, by God's grace, I'm going to follow this pattern. I'm going to praise you. And it may take you a few minutes, a few hours, even a few days to get there when this kind of comes. But God, I'm going to praise and worship you. To remember to follow this pattern. Second, I would encourage and invite all of us as a church family to remember those of this congregation who are hurting and suffering. To remember our brothers and sisters in Christ who are hurting and suffering today. And there are many in this fellowship who are going through some tough circumstances this morning. Karen and Brantley Bryan delivered a, received a blow. Sam and Anna Claire Rory, little Cooper, Casey and his family, and Missy and Ricky. Randy and Patricia Glover, those who've lost loved ones here in this fellowship over the last 18 months, Betty Snyder, Losing Jimmy, Elvis, Thomas losing Sheila, and Debbie White, and Mary Alice, and Christy Irby, Brother Marshall Robbins, and Jamie Cook losing her daughter, and Carol Bird, and Teresa Dabney losing her dad, and Don and Katie, and losing Will. I invite you to remember those who are going through cancer treatments, chemotherapy, and Radiation, sick. Russell Ketchum, hospitalized this week. There are those in this church who are struggling with relationships in their marriage and with their kids and struggling with addictions and struggling over loved ones and lost family members. And there are people here going through financial hardships and hurting and not knowing how they're going to pay their bills. Single moms. Not only to remember Christ and 
to praise him and to focus on him during the hardship, but then to remember other people who are going through this kind of stuff with us. For when one member suffers, we all suffer, and when one member rejoices, we all rejoice. I invite you to remember others. And then the last thing, I, I would invite you to join with me and determine that we are going to be a great army of comforters. A great army of comforters. And we as a congregation are going to comfort and encourage and come alongside and help and stand with others of our church family and our community are hurting. Let me share with you six considerations as you do. This is not going to be six-point sermon. Just want to hit these real quick. Six practical ways to comfort others, to be an army of comforters. Let it never be said that no one in that church cares about me. Now, if you want to be comforted, let me, let me preface this also. If you want to be comforted, you also need to connect to the church that people get to know you. So they have an opportunity to know you. They have an opportunity to serve you, administer to you, but six considerations. Number one, let's pray. Let's pray for each other. Be faithful to pray. Notice in the text, it's one of the things that he says there. And he says, and he talks about their prayers for him, how he was helped through their prayers. That's in verse 11. Let's pray for one another. Second, let's remember the power of presence. The power of presence. I can't tell you how many times people have called, go into a hospital room, family's all there. They're about to remove a loved one from life support. And I walk into rooms like that and I think, God, what do I do? What do I say? And I remember the power of presence. You're probably not going to remember anything I say anyways, but you know what? They'll remember that you were there. And sometimes it's unlike Job's friends. Sometimes when people are hurting, it's just better to come alongside to them and not say anything at all. And just to sit with them. And give them a hug and just, and just to be there. The power of presence. We can encourage people just with our presence, you know. I remember he was there. She was there. They were faithful. They stayed the power of presence. Third, let's be good listeners. Both to those that we are serving and to the Holy Spirit on how he might want to lead us to serve them. Be good listeners. Good listeners. Number four, let's share the word appropriately, sensitively, and at the right times. It's one of the best ways. Do you know the, the, the real, real gospel-based Christian encouragement is, is more than just coming along trying to help somebody feel good? It's also gospel-based, and it's scripturally based. And it comes from ministry of the word. Number five, we can comfort and encourage one another by using our resources. Let's use our resources. Acts 2, some were selling off their houses and lands and taking the proceeds and laying them 
at the apostles' feet to be distributed throughout the church as anyone had need. Let's, let's use our resources to invest in each other. Time, money, abilities. There was a, another brother I was talking to this week, and the Lord put it on his heart to financially to be generous and to give to another family in the church that was having a hard time. Finances, time, money. Let's invest in each other. And then number six, let's do it all for his glory. It's all for his glory. It's not to impress them with me, to make a name for ourselves. It's, it's always for his glory that he would increase and we would decrease. Let's be an army of comforters. Hillcrest, amen.